0: Welcome to Season 4, Episode 10 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Lee Klein. Lee is a writer and translator, and his new novel, Chaotic Good, is out now from Saggy Meniscus Press. Welcome to the show, Lee. Hello. You're joining us from just outside of Philadelphia. Do you want to tell us about life over there?
1: Um, sure, yeah. I'm in, it's called Rose Valley, Pennsylvania, which is about 15 miles west of Philadelphia, where I lived for like 13, 14 years. And I live in South Philly, which is like very much like bricks, and it's very, um, you know, it's red. For the most part, red and kind of gray with a with a um, asphalt. And then where I live here now, it's very much like the color feels completely different. It's just all green, lush, um, winding hills, as opposed to living on a grid like in the city. Um, we've been here for four years, and I'm just about acclimated to it, of a collection of uh, of like electric lawn maintenance tools. You know, I've learned how to use them, so. And that's where I am.
0: And you've got six chickens as well.
1: There are yeah six chickens, although this is our fourth block. So we've gone through a number. We've gone through maybe about eight chickens so far. So I'm getting really in touch with death through, which odd with chickens because like we are not vegetarians in any way. So I might be grilling some chicken, you know, but then the chickens are about. So I always say to my wife, like, what's for dinner? If the, chi- if the chickens were outside, I'll say, you know, we're having, like, C-H-I-C-K. Yeah. And I'll spell it out, because I don't want the chickens to get worried, you know. But it's different when we have a pet, right? And they they don't, they're, um, you know, I don't know. But they, they're very much susceptible to foxes, um, hawks. A weasel killed one. You know, one was poisoned. <laughs> you know, some left, neighbor left out some, like, rat poison that it got into. Um, and it's traumatic for my wife.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not for me, because I'm callous and whatever, but. I just have to dig the holes. Um, and I've gotten good at digging holes for, for birds, for these chickens. So hopefully, or, or we just got a new flock of six of them. The whole um, goal with this one was to keep them alive for a long time. So, you know, and it's fun to name them too. The names are great. Yeah, we had one called Fluffbutt that made it from the beginning that we got at the very beginning of the pandemic. And it lasted three years until about just recently. And uh, it was beheaded by a fox. I found its body but no head it was just i don't know what was up with that so, <laughs>
0: you
1: know the, the other two were just feathers
0: for work you work for a scientific publisher do you want to just tell us briefly about your work with them um
1: yeah like i i have i work as a project manager in an editorial capacity for a large benign um good corporation like international corporation i'm really lucky and thankful to have that job. And if they listen to this and think badly of it, I hope they don't like release me for whatever cause. No, I'm just going to, they're, they're, it, it's a great, like having an editorial job like I've had. I used to, I taught um, creative writing for two years after grad school or a year after grad school and then switched back to doing editorial work, which I'd done in the past. But it's like just leaves me room to, um, to not think about it at all on nights and weekends, unlike teaching or unlike almost any other job I've had. I've worked in restaurants and I've worked in bookstores and stuff where I'd like to think about it more. And this job is like, it allows me the stability, I guess, to, uh, you know, to, to follow my my elaborate creative pursuits. <laughs>
0: You're a graduate of iWriter's Workshop and your work has appeared in a range of publications. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background as a writer and where you grew up?
1: Um, Yeah, I grew up in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, which is five miles outside of Princeton or five miles outside of Trenton, New Jersey, which are very different um, locales and um, Trenton is more, I don't know, Princeton is like a half world, it's not even first world, like it's one of the more wealthy um, towns in America, Trenton is not that at all. So yeah, I grew up kind of in between those two. But my parents are from Newark, New York, New Jersey, mm-hmm.
2: um,
1: and my my dad's from Weequay, like the Weekwick section in Newark, which you know from the Philip Roth Philip Roth, yeah. Right, and he's nine. Yeah, so he's nine years younger than Philip Roth and grew up in that neighborhood. Um, and my mom grew up in another part of Newark in the, the Ironbound section, which is now all Portuguese, but it wasn't in the 40s and 50s. And um, my mom's not Jewish. My dad was Jewish from that Nation neighborhood. And we'd like read books, like would read Philip Roth books. I remember him reading, I guess, Must've been Patrimony, which I just read recently. Mm. And he was like, oh, he's describing something. He was describing something. Roth was describing something that my dad had attended and remembered from when he was like five years old, like some wow. some game or something like that happened. So, and then recently, you know, I've been reading, going back to Roth, trying to like access my father a little bit, because you know, my dad was very much on like Roth. Thank God, like he wasn't, you know, sexually um, charged <laughs> in any way the way Roth was. Um, and but both of them are were very much readers, um, and they're very different. Like my mom's a painter, They're kind of creative, and my dad was like, an accountant, like financial analyst. But they had, the first thing I did when they moved to London, New Jersey in 1971, was have the wall that was around the book sh- bookshelves, or the had the wall that was around the uh, fireplace to have it covered in bookshelves. You know, and then that was, I just grew up with all these books on this bookshelf, including like right above the fireplace, like on the mantle there, like Ulysses and um, Ada. And, you know, not that I read them at all, but I always, I. Was always familiar with like Ernest Hemingway and Philip Roth and Updike, Rabbit Run, those kind of books. They were just always there. Um, and so, my parents were readers, primarily. My mom, painter, so like encouraged to do some arts, and things like that. And then, um, and I was like a plagiarizer very early on, third grade. I plagiarized a book on turtles, in the bathroom. Um, I wrote. I was in the the Black Stallion series. And I wound up um like plagiarizing that and writing a book called well, not quite plagiarizing, I was just wholly derivative and wrote a thing called the white philly It was only like ten pages, I was very young, but it was still like you know, I wanted to be a writer. Or like I was, you know, I was inspired to if I read something, I was inspired to kind of create something off of it. Um I remember in like third grade taking um pages from the encyclopedia about greek gods and creating a book with a kiwi someone from your side of -hmm. the world named james humphrey and we made this like little book and we just plagiarized the text and so maybe that's one way of like learning how to write is by just you know copying down text that's already been published um and then you know i just wrote i wrote like songs i wrote um a couple of things in high school um that were like creative projects where you could write a story based on like sherlock holmes or whatever or you could write a creative project for an english class so i'd write stories for that and they were generally okay like well received and then you know mainly i wrote stories poetry i read read a little poetry um and then in college i took a creative writing class which i hated absolutely it was like i felt like the, the teacher wanted me to uh you know, write about my divorce and alcoholism and all that when I was a 19-year-old stoner,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, you should have just been like read Donald Barth, kid. but that was not what he was, was really. He was the kind of person like talked in whispered, hushed tones about the truth. You know, and he wore a leather vest, and it just wasn't really wasn't really what was working for me um, at the time. So I was really turned off from academic writing or academic or like any you know writing in an academic context at all. But I wasn't turned off like ultimately, only like two years. To uh kind of start writing again, which I started after college and um kind of I wanted to play music, and I had gone down to Austin, Texas to play music. I was working in a barbecue restaurant um in the kitchen, you know, making like 475 an hour at first and then six twenty-five as a kitchen manager eventually after a couple months. Um and and I just wound up started writing. I got frustrated playing music and I switched to writing I remember writing the first story on a day off in a park and then at a bar and continued you know just finding that was like that was more um more in line it was like going on in my head and trying to and also the music was so frustrating I wasn't finding people to play music with you know and and if I had I probably would have continued doing that but when you're 22, 23, I guess I was 22. It's like it was too late. You know, I was too old to, to become a musician. It was like it was already the time had passed. But writing was like a life sport, something I could do forever. You know, and so I then wound up going to Central America for like four or five months by myself and writing the whole time. Wrote a travel log, letters to people, and uh, five or six stories. And you know, that's when I kind of like started to. Um, you know I I went I hit the road and like found myself you know and then um yeah and just I continued to you know through the 90s and through my 20s I worked in bookstores and cafes and stuff like that and just kept trying to learn I worked in an antiquarian bookstore where there was just us filled with books the whole time and getting to see like the territory seeing the field like knowing what everything was trying to understanding like how much I didn't hadn't read you know I was like still considered like when we were in college when my teachers that same teacher with a leather vest like calling me out in this large lecture hall and being like Lee you're real re- you're rather well read like what do you read for you know so I mean he had considered me well read unless he was being derisive or something and uh, but I realized like I just didn't know anything at all you know in my twenties and then spent a couple of years just like reading and lying in bed like probably everybody. Who listens to this podcast does or has done it in in their life? You know, just having like book lust and having stacks of books piling up and then trying to write and writing weird like like, Kafka, deeply like Kafka, Beckett, Bartholomew, Antonio Artaud, like surrealist writers in, in my 20s. And, you know, I was drinking too much, like hardly making any money. Couldn't go out, you know, so I just kind of stay in and read and write these weird things by hand and notebooks. So this is before the internet, and it's, before, and it's like before the internet, so you can't like get, you know, you had to figure it all out in different ways, right? And you couldn't submit, or, or you know, I didn't even know about submitting things, I didn't even know about printing text. You know, that I had a, a workshop, I had a, a Smith Corona. Um, you know, wordpresses that I hardly ever used I just wrote by hand and then I still have those notebooks and they're like these weird They weren't white papers like brown paper like ragged recycled paper that my mom had gotten me it's kind of like artsy big notebooks like big notebook papers. and I cover them in like little black ink you know whatever totally uh, couldn't read half of it but didn't consider myself a writer like would never um, say that to anyone but was still reading as much as I could and then and then I went I had to leave Boston. I was living in Boston at the time, and just completely um, was not. I was only there for a year and a half, but it felt like I was there for four or five years. Uh, maybe because I never left my room, I just read. Mm-hmm. And then um, I moved back to New Jersey to my parents' house, and I temped. And while and while I was starting to attempt I sorry, I tempted to go to Peru because I had lived in Austin, and then I lived in Boston. I was going to go to Cusco, which starts with the C. So A, B, C. I was going to live among the along the alphabet of cities. Every year, I was going to go to another city from from Austin to Boston, to Cusco, to Durham, to Eugene, to Fez, to Gdansk, to Havana, etc cetera, Iowa City. Um, and every year, I would write about it and have like this thing. And so I was writing about I wound up writing about that, and I wound up writing about <clears throat> going on these temp jobs while I was living at home and writing about my friends and writing about my family and writing about these, you know, these exotic locales along the New Jersey corridor, like working at Xerox or working at like a pharmaceutical company or working at like a copy shop in an architectural firm in Princeton Um, and really having fun. I was like very inspired by Dave Foster Wallace essays um, and Mark Lehner and that kind of thing, you know, and just writing loosely, not really, you know, not thinking about publication or whatever. And again, it was like before I knew anything about that. I think I had a draft of it in Echo Press, like Echo Books, or whatever, the publishing company, ECCO. They were in Hopewell, New Jersey, which is about five miles away from my parents' house. And I printed up a copy and I kind of bound it with some pictures and a little letter. And like, I left it on their front porch. It was like a house, like they were going to be it like a baby left on the doorstep you know <laughs> and they were gonna be like well, what's this incredible manuscript and they had published us uh, signifying rappers by David Foster Wallace mm-hmm. and Mark Costello which I really loved um you know I was just so like I would sit at my computer at my parents house at the time and I would feel like syrupy like serotonin gelatinous goo swirling around in my brain as I wrote you know mm-hmm. and I particularly also in was in Boston I got a, I got a um I got a computer from a friend, which was huge. I mean, that's a huge thing I did not mention. Towards the end of living in Boston, I was given a computer from a friend who worked, whose father had a company whatever, and they, had, they were thrown away, so he brought it up to me. And I started to type my stories up, and then I started to revise them and to look at my stories and be like, why is this not like these T.C. Boyle books? I was a T.C. Boyle completist at the time. Mm-hmm. And I would like you know, like, why is my language not like his and it's flowing or whatever? And then I would try to, you know, start editing and start revising. And thats I feel like that's when I really sort of became like a writer is when I actually started revising, which is what actually what writing is. You know, there's like 10% composition and then 90, in my case, like 99% revision mm-hmm. um, for the most part. And so, um, yeah, I, I wound up going to not making it to, Central America. Like, I quit on the trip in Guatemala. I started from Austin and I mm-hmm. quit in um Guatemala City reading the Bruno system on Christmas Day. And then on the Christmas Day, I was walking around and I saw a slaughtered cow, like half of a cow, half of a steer thrown into the back of a pickup truck. And I was like, I want to live an American life. Like, I want to go home and watch The Simpsons and like drink some beers with my friends, you know? Mm-hmm. And also, I wanted to write and like finish the book I was working on, which had in this manuscript that ultimately became incidents of ego in the, in the temporary world, which was published in 2004 by small press. Um, and yeah, I just, I mean, that's, that's sort of like the, the initial phase, whereas a lot of it was coming out of like letter writing. It's kind of like a psychic, um, you know, disturbance disturbance in the force in my early twenties um, that, was channeled into writing thankfully mm. as opposed to something else you know but I was writing and the egotourism book was very much like what would be considered auto, auto fiction mm. you know but it was 2000 or sorry it was 1997 I was writing that way so it was like that was a natural thing that came out of letters like a lot of the the writing in that book, were actual letters like there were letters that i wrote while i was temping that i sent to people and then because i was temping i would print them and then have them at home you know and then i'm like oh this is a story and that was one of the first stories I got published in 1998 by the barcelona review they translated it into spanish um was one about going to see a black set of cover band mm. so that kind of fits to ultimately what i guess we'll talk about later like neutral evil mm. um i don't know am i answering the question in any way i'm just rambling i don't know
0: <laughs> well, out yeah, of this process, um, yeah. one of the things that comes out of this process is, I guess, you learning Spanish somewhere along the road yeah. and translating Horatio Castellanos Moya's uh, Revulsion, Thomas Bernhard, in San Salvador. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us about uh, getting to that point where you could translate something from Spanish and and that work in particular? Uh,
1: si no hablo español muy esperando, pero no hablo español ni nada. Yeah. Now, I, don't, I, I do speak Spanish. Um, I was lucky enough. Like I went to a great high school. Like I live in Lawrenceville, the town I live in, Lawrenceville, New Jersey, is the home of the Lawrenceville School, which is like I don't know if you ever heard of like Andover or Exeter, which are like prep mm-hmm. schools that you go to Harvard or to Yale. And Lawrenceville was the equivalent of going to Princeton. And because I lived in that town, I always wanted to go there. And I was like in third grade, I was like, I have to do well in school, you know, <laughs> so I get my grades up that I can get to that school, and uh. They had an incredible program, the great teachers, like just fantastic Spanish teachers, English teachers, history teachers, really small classes. And I wound up going to Alicante um, for the fall semester. of I think it was my, I want to say it was my junior year. I think it was, so I was probably like 16. And I had a girlfriend, Charo, you know, and it was great, like just hanging out with everybody and drinking um, Fanta Limon in the, you know, the Plaza de Correos in Alicante. Mm-hmm. And I, my Spanish got pretty good. Um, and then I've also, t- I, my Spanish was okay from like teaching. I taught kids from Ecuador in my 20s mm-hmm. in Heightstown, New Jersey, like ESL, but they didn't speak any English. So I wound up speaking a lot of Spanish and that really helped. And I also traveled in Central America by myself. So that's how I went to, I'd been to, I haven't really been to San Salvador too much, but I'd been to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. I've been to like La Libertad, which Moya talks about and i many years later i was like in at a work related conference in jersey city and where i had a hotel room and it was like two or three days and there was a lot of downtime where because it was in jersey city like i couldn't really do anything i just like went back to my hotel room and read and i read between parentheses by bologna Mm -hmm. that's published by new directions and that has so many amazing recommendations like temple of iconoclasts soldiers of city mass Mm -hmm. um the cesarea, you know, like so much stuff. But it also mentioned this book called, you know, El Asco, or like Revulsion, Thomas Bernhardt and San Salvador that hadn't been published. And I think I had read Senselessness at the time. I remember reading Senselessness at one point, like uh, translated by Catherine Silver and liking it more or less. Like I thought, it was, you know, I kind of got what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then yeah, like the fact that it hadn't been translated, I wound up getting it. Like I really wanted to read it. Also, what I'm leaving out is that in like 2002, I started Book Forum did a thing on Thomas Bernhard in 2002. And then, which interested me in Bernhard and I read The Loser and I really liked it. And then I read this thing that Stephen Dixon, who I liked as well, um, had written about Bernhard, that was on Rain Taxi. Like if you Google Stephen Dixon, Rain Taxi, Bernhard. Mm. You'll see this thing where he talks about it, and he, and he ga- just lays it all out, like how to go about reading Bernhard, which is I like mm. essentially did. Which basically, like, basically said later Bernhard is better than early Bernhard. I started with the losers, the loser, and woodcutters, and then just kept reading. So I ultimately, like, had read all the Bernhard, and I had been in El Salvador, and I spoke Spanish. So, and then there was like a short novel by Moya, I was kind of like, I think this is for me to translate, like, I think, so at least I got it, I got an EPUB, or I got a, a PDF, somehow, So I probably just stole off the internet, mm. and then copied and pasted the text into Word, and then I just started translating, kind of from my, for myself. And then I sent it to my friend, um, Christian Tabordo, who then said it was good, you know, and encouraged me to try to find a publisher. Mm. And and then over time, I don't want to go into like the elaborate history of trying to find a publisher, but at one point my wife encouraged me to apply for the penheim award um which i hadn't didn't really know about or anything and so i i submitted for that just like something to do you know which is like, i didn't really consider myself a translator like, i re- I translated a lot of it while kind of like watching the sixers like the professional basketball team are, like, the mm-hmm. 76ers mm-hmm. and like so there's timeouts this is before i'd record the games like i record the games down just shoot through them really fast but then there was like commercials timeouts you know Mm -hmm. so i would at that point i would like translate a couple lines and uh you know or a sentence or something i look something up and over time i had this text and you know um but then i ultimately won that um the penheim award or was awarded the penheim with a number of other books uh, another other translators and then was able to uh, ask new directions about it to see if they were interested, mm. and they were. And it was the greatest moment of my life since so I was working. Remember, I was working in the, um, I was working in the office in Philadelphia wearing like a sweat a sweatshirt, and it was like ninety five degrees outside, but it was like forty degrees in the office. The air mm. conditioner. And then I just kind of like went outside, hands in the air. It's yeah. like I can't believe like Barbara Ethel just said yes. You know, was like the really the greatest, one of the greatest rushes of um just pure joy you know
0: let's move on to Neutral Evil it's a novella and it's framed around your attendance at a concert in 2017 uh you use this as a jumping off point to explore family life the Trump era music consuming occasional edibles do you want to tell us a little bit more about writing that book
1: um yeah it was March 18th 2017 and I was up pretty early I was trying to write something, you know, I, I remember I wrote something about my daughter and I like, tried, I read Candide, um, Vol, the Voltaire book and I liked how it just kind of like ran away from itself. Um, at the workshop, I think Marilyn Robinson has said that about my own writing but it like ran away from itself, which mm-hmm. I took as a critique. But then when I read Voltaire, I was like, oh, running away from itself is kind of a thing. Like, it can be an interesting thing. Um, so I wanted to write something that ran away from itself and mm-hmm. I started writing some crazy, just a crazy thing about like my daughter who's like four at the time, mm-hmm. you know, throwing me in the car and taking me to the airport. And we went to New Orleans, but New Orleans was like aquatic, you mm-hmm. know, and just some craziness, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and totally whimsical and silly. And then I was like, I don't want to write something like this. <laughs> you know what I mean, this kind of, and then I was online poking around, looking at things and I saw that sun or however, anyway, I think it's usually pronounced sun. But it looks like Sun o oh, and then the mm-hmm. parentheses we're playing that night so I got a ticket my wife allowed me to go you know um and at one point I wasn't thinking about writing it but at one point in the night I was like oh this can be a novel which I think I did mentioned in mutual mm-hmm. evil and like there's a point of recognition it's like oh this is this can be a novel and and I think that's something that I I really like I love when that happens. It doesn't happen every day at all, but a lot of times I'm, you know, you're struck and you're, or I'm struck where I'm just like, this can be a story. But you're, you're, something's going on. Like that's that's a story. And neutral evil. I was like, this could be a novel, like a short novel. Mm-hmm. So I started taking more notes and getting more things down. And um, and I mean, that's really all it is. Is like, you know, that period after Trump was inaugurated. So it's this is like three weeks after Trump. And, you know, everybody with like, the resist, you know, just, like, I was glued to, had been glued to Twitter, but then deleted my Twitter at the time. Because I was really, like, I'd spend, I'd, like, get in the bed and put my glasses on,
2: Mm.
1: you know, read Twitter and just read all these, you know, things about the coming fascist state. And in college, I had had taken, like, European fascism as a course. You know, I'd taken Holocaust and fiction. I've also, like, for many years, I've been really uh, attracted to, like, that period like the 20s and 30s austrian german lit
2: mm-hmm.
1: european lit and translation like Stefan Zweig and stuff mussel right i'm just gonna be a little bit later but like just Roth, all those writers like why was i so attracted to them and it starts to become clear in a way that it's like oh, i'm attracted to them because like this we're going to go through the same thing
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: it's like intuitive in a way um and i thought of it in myself where i was like i'm you know, I'm of Eastern European descent. My mom's like a few generations back were Polish. My dad's side were like, you know, Ashkenazi. I'm actually 51% Ashkenazi, which is interesting
2: because
1: mm. um, it looks like my dad was either 101% Jewish mm. or my mom's just a little bit Jewish. <laughs> um, So um, anyway, so like, that's the kind of thing, like, you know, recognizing that we're going through something very similar, like Journey to the Past by Zweig or whatever, where there's, you know, brown shirts walking around Heidelberg. And I'd been to Heidelberg um, maybe in 2013 or 12 or something. Um, and I don't know, just like feeling like this is the beginning of history. Like, is it pre, pre-Civil War, pre-Second Civil War? Is it pre-World like World War Three or whatever? Like, that's the whole thing about those books from the period before, Europe, before World War II is like, they don't know what's coming. You know, it's a horror movie in a way, or a suspense novel. Like we know what's around the corner.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, and that's the way like a suspense movie works, right? Like you know, they're sitting there making out in the tent, and we know the killer is around the corner. And uh, that's kind of why I was attracted to those books as well. I was like, you know, there's this the horrific, particularly books from the 20s, early 30s. Mm-hmm. The worst thing is about to happen. Um, And so, kind of feeling that feeling of dread, and with some who played. Doom drone, incredibly, you know, incredibly loud, minimal, just like brum, notes. It sounds like the deepest, darkest note from Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And then just that one note extended in long periods. So it's very linear. Like the music is very linear and very dark, has a very heavy vibe. And, uh, and so I wanted to write, I wound up writing something that was like also very linear. Mm-hmm. But because it, because that book is really just like, Going to the show, taking the subway to the show, waiting, you know, waiting for the sh- the band to start. Here's the bands on now. going home. That's all it is. So it's like very set structure. It allowed me to go off in any direction, mm-hmm. which also helped because the narrator was uh, considered the adult with a blue cinnamon lollipop.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, very spicy. <laughs>
0: you
1: know. And also half of a chocolate cookie that was uh, or half of a cookie that had a good taste of chocolate.
0: With that, we should talk about your new book, Chaotic Good. Uh, it's kind of a follow-on from Neutral Evil, and this time you're heading to a fish concert in New York. Um, your daughter's six by this stage, and you start with a quote from the end of By Night in Chile, and the storm of shit begins. Do you want to take us take us back to December 28, 2019, and set up the scene for us?
1: Um. Yeah, like, I guess yeah so fish is not named in the band. like I kind of don't want it to be named because people mm-hmm. have issues with fish. like it's mm-hmm. you know people dismiss them and or der- you know derision towards that band. Um, two thousand december twenty eighth 2019 it was like a warm day a few days after Christmas and a little bit before New Year's. Fish was playing Madison Square Garden. I bought a ticket a couple months ahead of that for like two hundred and something dollars. Um, and in part, unlike Neutral Evil, I did it in advance intentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, in part, to have a, to write a sequel to neutral, neutral Evil in a way, and I knew the title was going to be Chaotic Good, you know, just because if you look at the moral alignments in Dungeons & Dragons, you don't have many options. Like Neutral Neutral mm-hmm. is not a good title. Mm-hmm. Chaotic Evil, I don't want to write about the chaotic evil. <laughs> you know, that seems a little tough.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but Chaotic Good have, has kind of like an ambiguity to, to it and, and an interest, and it just felt fit nicely and naturally i moved from philadelphia south philly to this area um like the suburban leafy hilly bucolic you know verdant area in 2019 and we were driving around a lot we had like serious xm The mm-hmm. fish has a station on it and the dead mm-hmm. have a station and i was a very much like a deadhead in high school and early college and then in 1991 i saw fish at um, my college at Oberlin in, in um, April or something 1991 with like 50 people for seven bucks and it was incredible mm-hmm. I saw them maybe 15 times up until 1993 usually at small venues sometimes like 50 people 100 people or a small concert or small like theaters with like 2,000 people but then I stopped listening to them and just completely went away from them and like completely distant. My, all my friends can still continue to listen and see them a hundred times and see mm. them at bar flung concerts in like the middle of the Everglades on the Y2K evening, you know, mm. they played from 11 o'clock at night until seven in the morning. there's incredible experiences. I completely missed out because they had played, um, there was a song they had called if, if we could, or if I could, mm. but I couldn't, I just couldn't fathom that they would have written the, the same band that had written David Bowie and you enjoy myself. and, mm stash and all these incredible songs like super complicated and composed wound up writing if if i could it's like yeah, if i could i would yeah just like, like anyway and then i also saw them on new year's eve 93 94 in an arena you know and it was just like it was not for me and i had been listening to all these other all this other music was so good like can and Fela, and um like serious jazz like post bop uh, impulse recordings that kind of thing and blues and and just needed you know needed to kind of change and, like shed my skin or cut my hair and whatever mm. so like you know put the kind of stupid hippie stuff away still listen to the dead every once in a while like the Veneta Oregon 1972 concert that playing in the band yeah, nice you know I had, I still was like listen to that tape but you know and I had gone to see the dead a bunch anyway so it was like I'm kind of like going full, coming back full circle, like returning to this music that I had loved and like really realized that I missed and living in the suburban area again, because I grew up in like a leafy, verdant area. and But then I lived in the cities for like however many years, 25, 30 years, and then coming back to um, the suburbs, so there like a recirculation. Connecticut has lots of like circular patterns in it. There's lots of like recirculations of like walking around concourses or, walking around the block there's an airplane flying around in circles there's a bunch of other circles kind of embedded in it. um not into it but just like kind of intuitively mm. um and yeah i went to see um i went to took the train from my parents house in lawrenceville and then took another subways to see an old college friend in um in brooklyn and walked around brooklyn with him talked about stuff. He was going through a really tough time. And then um then had some tacos and then went to Scratcher, a bar like in um near the Cooper Union area just off the Bowery. And then I walked, you know, to say goodbye to my friend and walked over and took the subway up to um to Madison Square Garden. And then and you know at this point I kind of like, you know, and watched the concert from the upper deck from the same vantage that arena show I had seen on New Year's Eve many years before, which, and I realized basically like, I don't like to see them. I would still like to see fish outside in the summer. So I saw them last year um, in Philadelphia, two nights in a row outside. And it was great. My tickets for them in about a month, same thing, the Man Music Center in Philadelphia. So excited to just be like outside. And it's got a great release too from like the family. Mm-hmm. You know, and the and the child rearing and all that, to uh, you know, surrender to the flow, as they say, which is like a lyric in one of the songs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but also that that lyric ties into some of the other things that are in the book and Care Kid, dealing with obstacles. You know, um, and yeah, I don't know. That's not that seems insufficient, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I don't know.
0: Well, in this book, you have a bit more space to speak about your family and things like that as well. Uh, Carly, your daughter in the book, has special needs, and her mum is not coping so well. One of the great set pieces in the book is this long scene that takes place in a parking lot at Walmart. Do you want to tell us about that scene in particular? Because I think it really grounds this book in a, in a lot of ways.
1: Um, yeah, we were just... I and mean, this comes from real life, and it was like sitting in one of my, my, my wife likes to, um, she has like serious ADHD. And so she needs to, she needs to plan everything. So she has these planners and then on Instagram, she follows like these people who like jazz up their planners, like pimp them out with like, you know, stickers and things. And so she wanted to go to Walmart because she heard that Walmart had like this incredible um, sticker supplies and like craft supplies. So we go, Kelly my daughter and i sit in the car thinking that my daughter's just gonna be like or my wife is just gonna be like five minutes or something mm-hmm. and we're playing the uh the radio i have a key turn just a little bit to listen to the dead, dead station they're playing like, a good show from like 74 or whatever i'm reading stuff on my phone worried about my kid having to pee and then like 10 minutes become 15 becomes 20 becomes 30. Mm-hmm. you know so then we listen to the whole first set of this dead show and then and uh, she hasn't come you know she hasn't come yet and then um you know, finally when she does come like maybe 40 minutes later um, turn the key get ready to go and we were going to go to new jersey to uh cherry hill mall which is very exciting mm-hmm. which in neutral evil i talked about going to the cherry hill mall and the guitar center over there it's like one of the things we did occasionally in philadelphia and uh and the car and the battery was dead so we had them wait for another like hour to get somebody to come and jump it but during that time like, I was standing waiting for the guy to come jump the car, and like, this, um, like a Roma fella probably not right to call them gypsies, but mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, apparently the Roma came by and saw the, the dent and said he'd fix it with like, a blowtorch and a plunger for 40 bucks. And he did, and we had this dent in the back of our car that we'd had for like maybe a year or two, you know, and it kind of characterized the car, but um you know, as in this, in that part of the story, it's like, there are all these things that are like the narrator I am going through or like bitching about or whatever, just Mm -hmm. like difficulties. But then it seems like having the dent pulled out like miraculously, like all of this Mm -hmm. was meant to happen this way. We meant to have this dent pulled out, you know, in this, and it was like, not, you know, we, you know, we're saved in a way. Um, not necessarily say but it's like it meant to happen this way like I mean, you have to go through these struggles and to get your dent knocked out or whatever Um, and and during that period I don't write about this this is like part why it's fiction is that you know I don't include everything I don't include myself saying oh, that's a story, that's a novel, that's a novel, that's a whole yeah. novel right there. You know what <laughs> I mean? I'm like super excited and psyched, you know, we've just been waiting in this Walmart parking lot for an hour and a half. And I'm like, ha I have a whole novel here. You know, just like, I have it all, I just have to like, get home and write it. <laughs> and I started writing and had like, you know, I just had this big wave, I could feel it. And it was, you know, it was just flowing and everything was going great. And then we wound up moving and I lost, we wound up moving that, that period in 2019. And I lost uh, the edge of it, mm-hmm. you know, and then I just wound up kind of whittling it down to this, this story that's in uh, or the part of the book, you know, and it became part of the overall Catechate. At first with Catechate, I just had the part of going to New York.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I was reading my friends, uh, Matthew Vollmer's, all of us together in the end, and manuscript. And it was so good. And I was just like, God, this is really, really, like, this is fantastic. Like, I was just so inspired by his, mm-hmm. this book, yeah, which came out most recently
2: mm-hmm.
1: that I was like I have to raise my game like I could cannot just be going to New York like it needs all these other things and then I kind of realized that I had these other parts and I was scratching my hard drive and being like it's all the same thing it's like all stuff with my family or whatever mm-hmm. and I had that part that I had written about my first dead show where we didn't go you know where my friend uh, freaked out and we wound up going to a hotel room but it worked out like we were flexible, you know. It was like, oh, this is the way it should work, you know. We were not meant to go to that show. We were meant to sit in this hotel room, this weirdly cylindrical shaped hotel room, mm-hmm. um, and watch LA Law and hear them say, you know, talking about salamanders for some reason. Mm-hmm. And then I saw my friend, another friend, say the word salamander in a weird deep voice and saw colors come out of his mouth, mm-hmm. um, you know. And that was after, anyway. Um, but it seemed like, yeah, everything. I was able to put all these pieces together that I'd had. And, so, and I realized that I had been writing this book, Kata Good, which ultimately became of Good. I wrote, I've been writing them for a few years, like since after Mutual Evil ended in that mm. period. And I had all these pieces and I just kind of need to arrange them in a way that hung together nicely. And then I include that part, the path at the end, which was I actually wrote first. Mm. And temporarily that's before everything else occurred, other than the, the dead show in the beginning. And in a way, so that it's like if you if you read chaotic good first, you could then segue back to neutral evil in a way, you know, because it would temporarily bridge you, like segue you back to the previous book, in a way.
0: Anyway, yeah, they almost seem like like, and I read these very close together. I read chaotic good first, and then neutral evil, and it does strike me they are like the same book in a lot of ways. Like it just seems, yeah, such a like not even a sequel, just a direct like. Um, continuation.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that if I didn't, you know, if Neutral Evil wasn't published, then mm. I'd probably have them all together in one one mm. volume. Maybe I'll just keep doing it, you know, the the Deleuze legend or whatever, the legend of Deleuze, like Kerouac considered all of his books one book or whatever. Mm. Yeah. You know, that great auto fictionist who's never mentioned as an autofictionist fictionist, in um Jack Kerouac or whatever. Mm. Or my struggle, of course, you know. Yeah. Bruce multi-volume you know not that i'm not i don't think there's another volume of of i don't think there's a third book or maybe there is but it'll really be different and definitely yeah. won't have a title that comes from dungeons and dragons because we kind of run i run out of titles there yeah neutral neutral it's not <laughs> a good title
0: <laughs> yeah. so. i should ask you what are you working on after this book
1: um yeah i'm finishing up right now um the next book that Saginaw will put out next year on June on Bloomsday, 2024. Mm-hmm. And that's a book that actually started on the day after Bloomsday in 2012. So that'll be been 12 full years that I've kind of had it around. And of course I haven't been spending the whole time writing the book, but, um, and that's called Like It Matters, an unpublishable novel. And like all of my books, it's like a really bad idea for a book. I've kind of like figured out that all of my books were these terrible, terrible ideas. Like, Kerik is an auto fiction about a jam band, mm-hmm. about moving to the suburbs, a middle-aged dad. You know, it's like not of interest to anybody at all. Um, neutral evil standing around Stone, listening to a doom drone band, like not a good idea for a book. My previous books are like, I have a three hundred year um, novel, a novel takes place over three hundred years, narrated from a the Jersey Devil, a cryptozool, cryptozoological beast. Yeah, you know, and. Before that, I have a book that is involved an autoflator who gets with a woman who has Immaculate conception disorder and like little women grow on the beard, mm-hmm. the autoflator's beard and he eats them and hilarity ensues. There's more to it, like way more craziness. And that's a terrible, terrible idea for a the egotourism book I have is a terrible, terrible idea. Um, and the, the new book, Like it Matters, an unpublished novel, is a bunch is Bloomsday at a bar, Five or six writers sitting around waiting for this like very kind of famous writer to show up. Um, and then they just drink and the whole time the narrator's wife is at home, very, 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 very pregnant. Mm-hmm. And which is a terrible idea for a book, but having a terrible idea for a book makes you write. And you, know, you have to overcome that obstacle that you set for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also it's like, it inspires me too. Cause Like, ha, oh, that's a terrible idea. Like chat GPT would never come up with that. You know, like no writer's room would be like, yeah, that's all the fiction I'm jam band. Yeah. So, so it's like, it's, it's uh, you know, contraindicated. It's not trending terms in any way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm working on that. And then and I'm kind of doing some other writing. I have another thing, too, that we're kind called, of um, called Literary Fundamentalism Forever, which are all my Goodreads reviews. Mm-hmm. I started writing in 2007. Um, Tao Lin invited me. To Goodreads in two thousand seven, like the same like the same week I started working in the office. Mm-hmm. So I started like filling in Goodreads, like all the books I'd read and rating them. And I've since written like eight hundred impressions. I wouldn't call them reviews because it's more like my writing experience. Um, and it's a lot like i have compiled them all. It's now like seven hundred fifty pages, like some two hundred fifty thousand words that I've contributed to Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get a lot of, out of Goodreads because every time somebody likes it, I reread and I have an idea. I reread my review and I have an idea. I remember what I thought about this book.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and it's also a lot like, I have this um, another book called Thanks and Sorry and Good Luck, Rejection Letters from the Eyeshot Outbox. And I edited a literary website for like 15 years and I would write rejection letters and those were all collected into a book. And so this is kind of like an extension of that um, but it'll be all book reviews and I want to get it published, I think in like 2032, I think that's uh, 25 years after I started writing these Goodreads reviews. So mm-hmm. I have a bunch of years, I have nine more years of doing it. So maybe it'll be like around 400,000 words. Um, so that's something I kind of just like work on when I'm not working on anything else, like going through these reviews. And It's like a very, very slant autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, Also, a terrible idea for a book that no one would buy because the thousand pages of good reviews. I have to live long enough for the next nine years or so for that to happen. Well, for someone who writes
0: terrible ideas into really great books, um, congratulations on Kyoti Good, especially uh, because it's just a fantastic Mm -hmm. book. Let's move on to your Gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you?
1: Oh, geez, Gateway. The gateway books. Um, I mentioned plagiarizing the book. Let's get turtles. That was really started. My my dad read. Uh, he read. Um, I mean, from when I was a little kid, whatever. There was a bunch of those books. But like, my dad read Peter Pan to me like every mm-hmm. night. That was probably the way it all started. Um, and let's see, wait one second. I wrote down a bunch of these things. Anticipating. As a good student, you know, trying to do the best I can for your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, where the wild things were. the Big, jo- big book of jokes and riddles. My mom sent me to my room one time and I sat with my back to the door reading the big book of jokes and riddles, like laughing. And my mom, I like, I turned to a book, you know, and i having such a good time. My mom made me go watch TV.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mentioned the Black Stallion books, Greek myths, um, Gary Gygax G- G- books, like Dungeons and Dragons. Um, a major moment in my life was a huge gateway to literature, the power of literature. It was in third grade, I had Judy Blooms Forever like the the dirty naughty book with Ralph.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, and I had all the pages paper clipped down. And I'd read them outside on recess. And I remember like, you know, attracting like a little little group of people around me as I read these the naughty bits from that Judy comes Forever. Mm-hmm. Um I read like the Lord of the Rings competitively with three kids in seventh grade. We'd like get sick, you know, for two days and come back and be like, haha, I finished you know, Twin <laughs> Towers or the two towers. Mm-hmm. Um and then high or you know, it was a high school, like eighth grade, the Bounty Trilogy, Count of Monte Cristo, Gatsby, Proof Rock, The Wasteland, Red Borges in um English and in Spanish in like AP
2: mm-hmm.
1: Spanish classes. So that was cool. I read Crumb and Punishment twice. Um, when I was once for fun, like in the summer, and once in a law and literature class in high school. That was great. Um Narcissus and Goldman by Hesse. And I have then on the you know, I remember just loving that. And I read like pretty much the other major or whatever the other Hesse books that young stoners read, like mm-hmm. Steppenwolf and Demian, Siddhartha, Journey to the East. But my mom, who I've not really talked about enough as an influence on in my reading, she gave me the Kafka stories around that time. I think I had read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and was talking about the themes and like what Nurse Cratchit represented and stuff. She's like, I think you might be ready for this. You know, and I opened it up and you know, Gregor Samser transformed in his bed into a, you know, a giant insect or whatever, mm-hmm. cockroach. Um, and I was kind of hooked with that. And then and I also read stuff like all the hippie books, like *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas* and *Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test*, *Doors of Perception*, *Island*, the Huxley books, um, and like another roadside attraction, *Still Life with Woodpecker* by Tom Robbins. And then I remember in college, um, freshman year, a sophomore saying to me. And i mentioned tom robbins and she said like oh well tom robbins is just kind of like a sophomore to vonnegut mm. i was like you're a sophomore like you're literally a sophomore you can't like demean tom robbins as like, being sophomoric like, when you are a sophomore mm. but mm. so i went up reading vonnegut that summer and like slaughterhouse five and the cradle did i dick crying about 49 or mm. that a couple times so, so i was got pinching like relatively early but i never really like latched on with him too much later you know red dirt marijuana and other stories by terry southern how they just end with the main character being killed, and that, that was you know, it was just a lot of fun. He also really liked Doctor Strangelove with the ends, mm. in a sudden manner with the bomb, right? Um, and the Beat Reader was like, which was a little bit like the Bolano, uh, between parentheses, it reminded me in the same way. You took the cover off of the the Beat Reader is black, hardcover, mm. same kind of texture, same size as the between parentheses. So reading like you know Burroughs and Corso, I love Gregory Corso. In Ginsburg, I saw Ginsburg read in Princeton in the early nineties, wow. and uh, and it was great because like if you think of the Sunflower Sutra, it's like very mysterious. But when he was reading, it's like I looked over, across the waters over north, and I saw a sunflower. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody laughed. Like people were laughing all the time. Mm-hmm. There was like the way he enunciated things. But if you listen to him read it from the fifties or whatever, the early sixties. He reads it in like this incantation kind of way you yeah. know? and I looked over the, the time I saw a sunflower that which is he was trying to like be William Blake or something
2: mm-hmm. but
1: because of that I would, like a lot of people I think they go from the beats and then they go into Blake and read some, um, some Blake and stuff like that and then in college I was like very much struck by Beloved in English I remember reading Beloved and just feeling like there was a storm over my head you know in the best possible way like just riveted um blown away by that and i wound up teaching that um when i taught a similar sort of class in college at temple after grad school um late in august i took a faulkner class i read all the faulkner classes as an english major so but late in august was the one that i really um latched onto the most and i read that several times and taught it um and um Paradis like paradise shakespeare almost all the classes i took in college because it was like during like the pc 90s were like you know shakespeare and feminism romanticism and feminism like i never really got just the shakespeare or just the romanticism which i kind of regretted a little bit like i just got this kind of filter on those things but uh still like king lear and hamlet came through particularly hamlet like if you watch the um the cinematic version with laurence olivier and you watch mm-hmm. it with the subtitles on i'd recommend that to anybody that's mm-hmm. about as good as i guess um and um, i took a holocaust and fiction class where i read sea under love that like with by david grossman Israeli really a writer and that oh. led to bruno schultz um were pretty incredible I Read mouse in that class um i had read like people hadn't really talked about graphic novels much on this show but um but i read mouse and before that i had read i had copies of raw which was r spiegelman's like collection i still have them in the bookshelf behind me there Mm -hmm. um and that was like bathroom reading in our house like my mom you know because we lived outside of new york right it's like my mom had access to these things or would bring these things into the home i remember being blown away by the richard mcguire um in there that became the book here that also was hugely influential that on chris ware who also saw Mm. that in raw and it's hard to explain it's like the house and there's each frame has little subframes in it that have different t- times in it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're sitting, like I'm sitting right now in a hundred year old house, and we see it in the present. But there could be a subframe over here about what's happening in like 1944, or what's happening mm-hmm. in 1933. And another, the next panel is what's happening in like 2044, and yeah. another one in, you know, six million years ago, and everything's fire.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, So that was, that's an incredible um, book, just like approach. Um, and then, yeah, let's see. After yeah, after college, like that's when I really started to read. I guess like that's when the doors were wide open. Yeah. You know, the gateway was like thrown open fully after college, where I started to have a lot of that time. It's like self-directed reading fully. So, like, you, you know, you work and then you have all this time. And the the creative writing teacher who I mentioned I wasn't a big fan of, he um, he did mention to read The Tindrum. Like Gunter Grass, which I did read, and I read the Danzig trilogy and was, you know, just, I love that. I um, was blown away. And then I was reading, I guess, like a lot of stuff in translation, and my roommate at the time was like, You don't read anything in English. You know, although he gave me a personal manner Matter by which I loved, and Kobo Ades, The Boxman read. Um, but I wound up reading like Raymond Carver and some Steinbeck short novels, Tortillo, mm-hmm. um, wow. The Canary Row. Mm-hmm. and um and hamson you know hunger it's like and then when i was in central america i was reading the Shiver stories which is like really odd to read like that red book of uh john Shiver stories while you're in central america people would sometimes comment on that It's like mm-hmm. didn't seem like the right kind of thing but i loved mm-hmm. it i remember just being in, you know just every night reading a story or two as soon as going back like the swimmer and goodbye your goodbye my uh, my brother mm-hmm. um when I came back from that trip, I was like a, a Paul Auster completist. I read all the, the Paul Auster up to that time. So up until like Tim Beck two, I was a Paul Auster completist. I used the word, whenever I use the word however, in a short in a story, I'm oh, like, I, I think oh, I got that from Paul Auster.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, my mom also gave me the Beckett trilogy at that time. So when I was up in Boston, I moved to Boston. So I read pretty much all the Beckett that I could get. In the biography, and I was really in the Kafka. I read all the Kafka, I read all the Hanka that was available up to then. Mm.
2: Um,
1: particularly the which I'll get to a little bit later, the weight of the world was really important. Entering Arto, like chanting mm. men suicided by of uh, society. Like that stuff was particularly as I was like at my most psychologically um tenuous or whatever, mm. um tender, reading like Hanka and Artaud was uh, important or just seemed to jive with like the general psychic distress or like depression that I was in at the time. Mm-hmm. But I also read Bartholomew for 40 stories, 60 stories. And, you know, like felt like, ah, like, how, where's this going you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and Guy de Montpessant, I worked at the bookstore and somebody told me to read, at a, an Aquarian bookstore and somebody said to read, Guy de Montpessant is super cool. So, mm-hmm. whenever I hear Guy de I say, Guy de is super cool. And check off all those stories and TC Boyle, Tortilla Curtain, I really love. And I read all those stories. Um, Philip Roth, Operation Shylock, I read at that time, American Pastoral. Um, and I, because my dad is from the same neighborhood, I think I mentioned that earlier, really. mm-hmm. um, the week section section in the north, but I, like, I, I used Roth as like an entryway into my father's uh, life that he never really told me about. Mm-hmm. although my dad's life is nowhere like those books, just the same neighborhood. And Sontag and essays, I read Ulysses with the guidebook, I read Moby Dick, you know, and that's in like mid 20s, um, working $7 an hour at an aquarium bookstore, touching like all these rare books that had, um, you know, that had signatures in them. I rubbed mm-hmm. my hand over the same, you know, the signature of like Virginia Woolf or Faulkner, Nishima, mm-hmm. Ezra Pound. We had Ezra Pound's copy of, uh dante's inferno but he'd had in in um well he was in prison yeah it was just like a weird thing the wedge by william carlos williams this little orange book that was like two thousand mm-hmm.
2: um
1: and yeah and then like when the doors are really wide open it was like when i got the computer that i mentioned before sort of revising the david foster wallace essays and simply really fun thing i'll never do again particularly the um the one about tennis and tornado alley Mm-hmm. That one made me realize I could write about my life, you know, that I could write about anything. Like, anyone could write about anything as long as it's like relatively smart, relatively funny, and good, engaging prose. Like, you could write about playing tennis in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, I would say, like, David Foster Wallace, particularly his essays, had viral intelligence. Like, he was able to, you'd read him and you'd become a little bit smarter. Mm-hmm. I feel like, it could help. And then, like, it infected a lot of people ultimately and like it wound up like that blog kind of voice, like when everybody started writing on the on the computer and posting it everywhere, particularly in blogs. Yeah. Like David Foster Wallace was kind of a precedent for that. But in the late 90s, it was really exciting. Now the book that was also given to me by my mother.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and he mentioned Mark Laner, who I loved and absolutely love Mark Laner. He's hugely influential on some of the stuff I did early on. Mm-hmm. Incredibly funny. Um I asked him once at a reading why he had uh, blown up the princeton hyatt mm-hmm. at the end of one of his novels and he was like oh well the marriott was booked that day, so, you so know, i had to choose the hyatt and mm-hmm. i was like fucker man like I and mean, then i went up wrote something called satirist suck mm-hmm. <laughs> under a, i used to post stuff under on ishot.net which we haven't talked about at all I, this website that i edited a little website for 15 years and i started it by putting a lot of the stuff i wrote in boston mm-hmm that um, had been notebooks, I typed them up and then put them under pseudonyms on iShot. But one of those things is satirists suck uh, about Mark Laner. Mm-hmm. Um, although I love Mark Laner, I was just kind of messing around. They're not going to give you a serious answer. There was a period with like reading Mark Laner from those David Foster Wallace essays and then from that, getting into like reading um, Delillo, like White Noise, you know, and Rick Moody the early books. Um, Purple America, and then he had a book called the, the Brightest Rings Around Heaven or something like that. And the last story in it was a list of, of like recommendations. He also included the Feelies, who I'd never listened to. So I listened to the Feelies and I bought the recognitions. And uh, so I read the recognitions around that time and, and just trying to read it, there was like an online helper, um, you know, resource. That kind of helped me along through it. Like the same way I read Ulysses a couple of years before that with a guidebook and it was really helpful. Um the recognitions is like driving across country or across the United States or drive across Australia, I suppose. But like, you know, the long pe- I mean, I'm sure you read it, like there's long periods where it's just kind of slog, but then you hit the Rocky Mountains,
2: you know. Mm-hmm.
1: There's majesty. Um and then George Saunders, I pulled George Saunders off of a book bookshelf that I um Bookstore, the Civil War Land and Bad Decline. I'd never heard of it. Just saw this like little red and black book. Read the first two stories that night, and then the next day I called him sick. Drove down to the beach, which was like a half an hour from where I was living in Princeton at the time, and uh, you know read all those stories and just absolutely loved them. And then read Pastoralia, and uh, and you know that's where I kind of felt like I was getting a little bit of aware of like what was going on in contemporary, at least American fiction at the time. And then into that, and like that seguing a little bit into McSweeney's, I moved to New York in 2000, to so Brooklyn, and went to McSweeney's reading for their fourth book, their fourth uh, journal. And like through the website that I had started in 99, I wound up um, meeting one of the readers from that, who, who read that night. And like, and just kind of the world, like completely opened up. Like i moved to New York, not knowing any writers and kind of wanting to meet, writers and then suddenly almost everybody I knew were writers and you know, I was I was meeting writers who were just like way way beyond my you know capacity to kind of to hang in a lot of ways um which was great and that's why you moved to New or to kind of have that experience it could really only happen in a city like that and it happened incredibly quickly like within a month I was um you know there was a kind of like explosion of the number of writers that I knew you know and part of it was because of Website I was doing, and some of the people I had met, um, a little bit who related to McSweeney's, um, and through, and then that opened up more and more books. You know, with in reading um, Nabokov and The Last Samurai around that time. Um, Helen DeWitt which is just the greatest book of all time, which I read, reread again like a couple years ago, maybe ten years ago, really, and I have like maybe three or four copies behind me the bookshelves and i'll give to people all the time my favorites um yet not on my desert island books We'll preview (laughs) um started reading bernhard around that time as i mentioned sebald the um you know read all the sebald that was available at the time i think australis came out around that time but um the um, rings of saturn evidence and then i wound up going to to iowa and um I read the Google stories, like particularly the nose and the overcoat and just read those a few times and taught those as well. And the Salinger stories that I'd never read Salinger, like I guess I read, um, Tetra Narai in like seventh grade or whatever in school, but then, um, I'd never read the story. So reading all the stories and reading Franny and Zooey. Um, and Jeff Dyer, he's a, a writer who I really liked, particularly earlier stuff um out of sheer rage which was influenced a little bit by Bernhard about trying to write an essay you know it's a book about trying to write an essay which definitely comes from can't remember exactly the Bernhard book maybe concrete mm-hmm. um and um at the workshop like the thing that really struck me the most oddly was an Ed- edward Carey seminar about the use of images in in fiction and you know for, for some reason we read uh, philip pullman his dark materials which was just like kind of transported me back to reading tolkien when i was a kid and that teleportive, completely immersive just like all i wanted me to do was lie in bed and read you know and, and particularly when you're in the workshop and you're really going over stories all the time and you know you're you're every week you're, every, you're line editing two stories and trying to figure out what you are gonna say about them and talking about them. To have that kind of like deep immersive um, reading was amazing. And also to, you know, and he does like spoiler alert, like kills God in like a half a page in that book, which was just pretty incredible. Um, and then I was like, I was reading a lot of like I shop submissions and online sites and like manuscripts from writer friends and workshop stories and student stories. Like what I was teaching after the workshop I was moved to Philadelphia teaching at temple, reading student stories, reading the things that I had assigned, and really not, um, you know, it, just feeling like something was missing in a lot of ways and also feeling like I really didn't know. like I knew the field. like I knew what I didn't know to a degree. you know, when I was younger, like you don't know what you don't know, that kind of thing. And I definitely knew what I didn't know. and I didn't know so much and I hadn't read so much. So like in part in part for that a bunch of other reasons something to do with money and whatever, I wound up going and getting like an editorial job. And then I had full time to read. I walked to work and read. I walked at lunch and I read, walked home and I read. I read after work. You know, I worked read on the weekends. I read at the bars, the happy hours in Philadelphia. Um I was just constantly reading from like pretty much from 2007 until we moved. I mean we had a kid, I got married, that kind of thing. So I didn't read quite as much, but that walking and reading constantly like I could, figured I could like I found I could read more complicated fiction by walking.
0: So you were it actually walking, in, holding a book.
1: Yeah, it started in 2002. I was reading um, a Bruno Schultz book. I can't remember which one, either Streets of Crocodiles or a Sanatorium Under the Sign of the Hourglass. And I was walking across McCarran Park to the L from from Greenpoint, where the and I had the book with me. and I just started reading, walking across McCarran Park, and I had been falling asleep reading it it and liking it but like you know dozing off a little bit um if i had had an iphone at the time i would have been looking at my phone probably instead of reading and then i was i was walking across the park i was reading a book and being like deeply immersed. and i was like how is i'm not sure how it was possible maybe it was because of the you know you have to look up every once in a while make sure you don't hit something or trip or whatever um so you're constantly like looking up and then looking back down looking up and that kind of allowed me to um to be more engaged with books like that. And so I was able to, you know, in that period from 2007 when I stopped teaching and was working until just 2019, you know, I was able to read, I was able to read like the full Proust, right? Walking and reading the, the Musil, the rest, you know, all of Bernhard, all of like the major Thomas Mann books, all of the Homsen, all the Bologna, like all the Kanaskar, Rachel Cusk. You know, all the Welbeck, all the Nard books, um, Julian Graf, George Perak, you know, just like everything Zvi, um, Grace Paley, Bohemian Harbal, Aria, um, you know, books like The Waves or whatever. I mean, there, there, of course, there is like the winter time, there is rain, you know, so I wasn't constantly walking <laughs> and reading these books, but I was able to like really, you know, the, the doors of literature open in a the way they open. The successions it's like in the trial but beyond you know before the law it's like there's a more fearsome guard beyond me if you get beyond me and behind them there's even a more fearsome guard but all these different levels and i was able to from 2007 or so 2019 like really unlock this level of reading like i would consider myself more of a reader really than a, as a writer like that's my primary thing like if you were to take away i feel like if you were to take away everything you know i'd still have that, as long as I had my site, you know, even then, who you knows? Um, but um, yeah, I think that's pretty much sort of gets the like I, moving out here. We had it for about six months. I had a 40 minute train ride. I wrote could thumbing it out on my phone in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, not the whole thing, but like maybe half of it, I thumbed into my phone, which is an interesting way to do it. Um, but then otherwise, I was able to read, had a reading set period of reading and then pandemic working from home and i really haven't been able to read you know not as much you know so it's like Mm -hmm. a new era of reading where i'm doing the best i can you know it's like i noticed that i'm reading you know reading more things like steinbeck i really like the Magus, the Mm -hmm. john Falls book through 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 Mm -hmm. a couple people had recommended it on here um but it's like more accessible east eden i read but i had never read it I want to mm-hmm. read all of Steinbeck, I feel like Steinbeck completed you near know, Tobias Wolff, that kind of thing, like
2: mm-hmm.
1: more like on the more central, like on the continuum of, of experimentation and unconventional writing, like something kind of more straight writing. I think because it's, that's what I can read at this point, you know, like, um, so reading Canastad or reading uh, Thomas Espedal, who's an Norwegian writer like, or Doug Solstead, like that kind of stuff yeah. is kind of easier, reading maybe i'm just getting old you know that's probably what it is um but that pretty much gets us to the present i just got a almost Espidal book in the mail today where i'll start the last one that i'll be a completist um, and um
0: what well, draws us nicely onto the books you're currently reading or you've recently read or you're looking forward to
1: um yeah i've recently read see i mentioned all of us together in the end i just read that in manuscript i'm reading it um in print and um that's by matthew volmer and he has two books that's called uh, called inscriptions for headstones it was published by outpost 19 and also a permanent exhibit that was published a few years ago i mean all three of those i think are fantastic he does a really interesting job um, just has his like method is mature and he's fully kind of like um, in possession of what he's doing he's doing something interesting incorporating um the news and facebook and social media um, and, and writes and you know just flowing um interesting prose um recently read uh, bang bang crash by nick brown he's also he's a he's a an acquaintance from iowa too, at the same time he wrote a um memoir about switching from playing music he was a professional drummer just switching from that to becoming a writer which is a little bit like neutral evil i write about that as well um and just gulp that down totally um um read recently read like all of the dag stolstead that's mm. available Norwegian writer novel 11 book 18 was the one that i most uh recommend that was the first one i read and it was i thought maybe it was the best one but uh they're only like four or five of his books are, are in translation, and uh, because of that, I not because of that, but I wound up starting in part because of reading. that I started learning um, Norwegian wow. using Duolingo, and, and maybe in like three or four years, I'll try to translate one of the books. He has so many books, so maybe mm. you know, I'll try to translate a little bit or try to read it in um uh, in um Norwegian in Norwegian. Yeah, I recently read a uh, Balan Deck by Matt Fisher booker. Um, I'm a huge fan of Markson um, from, they always had his books at the Strand. They were always out. And so I read all of them but I did not read Reader's Block which I'm also currently reading right now. But I really enjoyed Beyond, uh, and kind of like updates Markson for the contemporary like time of PowerPoints and time of um, artificial intelligence. Um, recently read a bunch of Philip Roth like Zuckerman unbound and mm-hmm. Patrimony and the facts and the counter life. I mentioned before, it's like an entryway into my um trying to turn- like, yeah, sort of like trying turn- like, to, but it's just it's just really not like my dad. You know, mm-hmm. like whatever he talks about the neighborhood, I kind of I get a sense. My dad never talked about the neighborhood. Um and yeah, and the current was it like currently reading? Like, um, reading which is the mouse squad's first book in norwegian so out of this world i'm i'm at the ebook i'm reading incredibly slowly like putting it into google translate like mm-hmm. paragraph by paragraph and i can read a little bit in Norwegian. I i read maybe like 40 percent at this point and then the rest of it i have to kind of like see the translation and then go back and forth so i'm kind of learning doing that and that's a lot like my struggle book by. but archipelago would never put it out like they had said it was supposed to come out like in 2019. Mm-hmm. Or maybe 2018 it keeps getting pushed back um so hopefully it'll come out at one point but by then I'll finish this 800 page ebook mm.
0: in Norwegian um, he's got a new one coming and, out like shortly doesn't it
1: yeah the Wolves of Eternity I, I love the Morning Star it came out in the yeah. fall right around um, Halloween here mm. and it's just kind of perfectly synced and I was just you know, I was reading it at like 100 page clips mm. it's 666 pages long Morning Star which is kind of a joke but um I, yeah i absolutely loved it i, I just i'm, I'm a scared completist canals completist um my struggle absolutely you know i synced right up with that down those books in seconds
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and even the thousand page um uh, book six i just gulped it down absolutely um but even the other book like his um i'll talk about time for everything a little bit later maybe a little preview to the book and um and but all like inadvertent a book about writing like this kind of his approach to writing is great the book home and away about soccer football um in brazil is fantastic he's he wrote half of it and another um writer who lives in brazil write about soccer um which is a little bit like signifying rap because i didn't go that was a fantastic book no one ever talks about that but that's that's great season's quartet I mean, yeah all of them I just I'll I'll read whatever he mm-hmm. you know he writes and maybe one day I'll read them in the, the original and as well I am reading it now but it's like it's interesting to see that to see it in a region like I can kind of almost read it. it's very simple like particularly he might have longer sentences but his phrases his sentences are made up of short phrases that are pretty clear like I often mm-hmm. understand them not that and I don't at this age or like this point in like my career as a reader or writer or whatever like I don't I don't want something necessarily like way over my head. I think it's important to read way over your head, like to read the recognitions when you're 27 or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, to read Artaud or whoever, Beckett when you're younger. But at this point, that's not necessarily what I'm looking for, like looking more for teleportation and clarity and Mm -hmm. um, wisdom, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, And then I'm reading the Henri Correa-Bressani interviews um and that's been interesting with his interviews with photographer because it's like his approach to photography is very similar it turns out very similar to what i feel like i'm doing in in the last two books where it's kind of intuitive using form and whenever he's asked about like what he's trying to do he's like i do nothing it's just i see it i take a picture you know Mm -hmm. and and that's like the honest Description of like how I go about doing things that I'm doing, but I, I'm reading that because my my father had a photo. There's a photo of my father in the New Yorker in February um, from 1975, taken by Henry Cartier-Prasson in mm. in at his office. So when I was three, and my dad was 33, and it it published, it published or the publisher. Mom and I saw the picture in the New Yorker the day between my birthday and her birthday we both have birthdays four days apart in february and the few days before that on my daughter's birthday which is two days before mine my dad had fallen and like hit his head and moved to hospice care so we were thinking he would die and then a few days later there's this picture of him when he's 33 years old taken by the most you know one of the most famous photographers in the world in the new Yorker. it was just it was you know one of those things we were just kind of Wandering around in a days, like how did that happen? Like how is that possible? And my dad had no artistic aspirations at all, but he's kind of immortalized, you know. And my mom is a painter and really, you know, been working at it for forty years, and I've been doing what I've been doing for a while. And uh, you know, my dad—little do we know—the whole time, <laughs> you know, my dad, people will be cool looking at his this photo, uh, his, you know, for for probably forever. So, um, so that's been interesting to try to learn about. And I think that'll probably work into some future writing as well, like writing about that. Mm. Um I just started Ubeck like the Philip K. Dick book and the year by Thomas Vespadal just arrived today. So so I did have like a stack of books, you know, that are that are there. Um and looking forward to, did you say that or no? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, looking forward to like a middle March Trollope. I've never read that. I want to read that. I've been trying to read it for Middlemarch. I've been trying to read for 20 years. Yeah. I have a really nice copy of it. I just want to do it at one point. I know that's like a whole and troll it, troll it too. Like, I just don't. I haven't read it. I haven't read the, a lot of those like Austin books, British, British um, 19th century novels. I just yeah. really haven't. Um, but those are two I want to try to get to this summer um, The Wolf of Eternity mentioned before, uh, the NASCAR book. The next installment, um, MJ Nichols stories coming out from Saga Meniscus, some the MJ Nichols near completed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the whole how I got set up or connected to Jacob. That Saga Meniscus was through MJ, from mm-hmm. Goodreads for he writes the most incredible Goodreads reviews. He's written maybe 2000 of them. They're incredibly, uh, wildly worded, all like alliterative and playful. And, but he's also insightful and critical. And, um, there should be a book of his could read reviews that would be something. But uh, he if you have some stories coming out and um what else? There's there's that. um yeah I have this whole I just basically have a whole stack of books behind me that are from this podcast. You know, Monument Maker, um The Salt Line and the and Logos, Marcus Silva. Um you know I'm just looking at all the Andre Newman of Traveler of the Century and um how to travel without seeing. I mean, just there's a just stacks of them sutra mm-hmm. sutra like Cormac mccarthy i haven't hadn't read i would read like maybe three of his books only i haven't read the first bunch the first four of his novels so that's something i want to get to um but yeah the kindly ones too much life please the specter the kafka diaries just stacks like hundreds of dollars i've spent on uh my to-read shelf, my literal to-read shelf is just mm. weighed down with books I'll never get to. My number one goal as a reader is to not spend any more money. I'm sure this is the same with everybody. It's like, just read the books you have. Like, I can do it for 10 years. That's, what, that's my new plan. At the end of this this podcast, a new era of reading, another gate will open up. The gate of read the damn books you own and do not buy another one. And just spend
0: good 10, 15 years
1: doing that. Seems good.
0: I give you twenty minutes.
1: Twenty minutes before I buy a new one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah, I like to just like add them to my to my cart, you know, or mm. save them for later as opposed to buying them. Yeah. The nearest bookstore for me is like five or six miles away, Barnes and Noble.
2: Mm. You
1: know what I mean? So it's it's not so good. The bookstores in Philly were pretty good, but but I the kind of books I want to get, like I kind of have to rely on Amazon or go to a bookstore and ask them to order it for me. Like I'm never gonna do that. Yeah. so uh you know it's just the way it is <laughs> and ebooks though i've been starting to read ebooks more a little like getting a little bit better for shorter mm. you know especially like any or our new books they're you know, like a lot cheaper than getting yeah. them from pizcarada for 20 bucks <laughs> and waiting mm. three months
0: so. yeah yeah i find for the short things like often like an ebook is so good because you can just knock it off in a day you don't have to wait for postage you don't have to pay as much yeah
1: but when they're longer, it's it's daunting, you know. Yeah. You have fourteen thousand. I read the right. um, the mystery doc by Matthew yeah. MacIntosh. Mm-hmm. I have the book, right? Like a huge book, which is really not big. I'm sure the manuscript is like three hundred fifty pages, yeah. but the the there's so much like white space and asterisks and things like that. Yeah, That's, maybe it's seventy five thousand words or whatever. But um, I read some of it because I wasn't going to take it like on the subway. So in Philly, I was reading out my. My phone. It was amazing because you could imagine the book with fourteen thousand pages, ebook pages, yeah. on your phone, coming like extending from your hand all the way down, <laughs> and then it would start talking about like the the World Trade Center the collapse of that, and you could just kind of imagine this World Trade Center as like the the you know these pages that extended out of your hand. And then you go back and read the book, and then yeah, that was the most incredible reading experience I've had in terms of using reading a book and also reading it with my phone you
2: know? yeah
1: because it was also about like reading twitter and switching to instagram and getting a text message and then being and remembering being on text support during the day or something at work and then going back to the book you know it's just you know something special
0: we'll take a quick break here on Mildred zero we're speaking with lee klein sick of your life and you want a new start? Does a burden of family weigh heavily on you? Are you craving a different sort of sea change? Well if you are, why not join the BTZ submarine crew going to see the Titanic? There may be an implosion and you may die horribly or you may end up with a brand new identity and living on a billionaire's island. Use promo code too Fucking Soon and you could get 10% off your voyage. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Lee's Desert Island Books.
1: Desert Island Books. I'm going to do it just a little bit different, shift it up a little bit, you know, some slight divergence. If I were on Desert Island, actually I would not deal with reading most likely. I'd be doing survival, whatever. But I think there are books that are like Desert Islands in themselves you know and when you read them you're kind of teleported, transferred to this you know an island out in the middle of the ocean so kind of like think of the desert island books as like this little archipelago of these books that are like maybe underread, but also you know will transform you to a little solitary oasis in the ocean um and the first one i'll go with is the birds by Tar- tarja Vesas, published by archipelago um was published in the 50s um that's about a a young man and his sister and the man the man matisse has you know it's not somebody either he has special needs or autism or something it's a perfect little short book maybe three sections to it um and there's something there's a perfection to it i think it just is how in the the structure how simple it is how you know tragic and and I think also with my child, it's like I've had more of a connection to it with that recently. Um, the Weight of the World by Peter Huntka, I read that in um, when I was in Boston at a pretty depressive time, and that book was really helpful. I don't want to say it like, you know, it helped me help me maintain like maintain the perception that I needed to kind of pull myself out of a depression time. You know, like it. It's just a book. It's a little bit like renata Alvarez' Speedboat or Sleepless Nights, like fragmentary little bits, almost like tweet or a tweet, not Twitter novel in a way. Um, from for a year and a half, it's from the seventies Austrian writer um, who goes to Paris. He talks about his daughter a little bit. It's just descriptions mainly, they're like somebody he sees in the park who's slouch down and then a, like a beautiful woman walks by and he sit, the guy sits up a little bit and then the woman walks by and he slouches back down. Like little things like that. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen Ben Bender's um, Wing is of Desire? Peter Hunter wrote the, wrote the screenplay. And so the angels, the kind of things the angels say to each other in the beginning are pretty much taken from that book. But that book's always been important to me. Um, another one is A Time to Live and A Time to Die by Ein Maria Remarkt. He wrote all quiet on the western front and a couple years ago at work a woman i knew there who had worked for archipelago as an intern and had worked on stone by stone which is a fantastic polish book by a writer whose name i won't try to pronounce um and recommended that book to me i recommended that enrique maria remark and i was like i've never heard of i have no idea who that is Mm -hmm. i just had never heard the name i couldn't imagine that i hadn't heard the name like How is it possible? I've never heard this name. And then she said, All Quiet on the Western Front. And I was like, in my head, that was a Western, which Mm -hmm. is so idiotic. But like, I stopped at Western, All Quiet on the Western in my head. I I never knew what it was about. I never watched it, never read it. Um, I read that. That was an incredible um, war novel. And then A Time to Live and A Time to Die um, is... I think it's actually called A Time to Love and a Time to Die in English. The translation is actually called A Time to Love and a Time to Die, which is kind of like a cheesy James Bond title. Um, in The the actual title in German is A Time to Live and a Time to Die. I mean, it would translate to that. Um, and it's about a Nazi soldier on the Russian front who comes home as his town is getting bombed out and um, he was in love with this young woman he meets. But it's a, the novel is it's so perfectly like dramatized the complexity of humanity. Like there's all the gradients of different sorts of Germans, you know, from the arch evil Nazis to the ones who like, you're just kind of care about themselves to the ones who are, uh, you know, in the resistance. Um And I think that, you know, that's a major thing that like literature doesn't have any reason for it to be. But one of the things that it could be is this like complexity and emphasis, you know, this emphasis on the complexity of reality. And I think, and it's just an incredibly well written moving um novelist. I've never really heard anybody talk about, so that's one that I would recommend. Um and then Garden Ashes by Danilo Kiss, who Seth Rogoff recommended. So I was like, oh man, that's what really, I heard him say that. Mm-hmm. I was ready to use that. And that's kind of like a Bruno Schultz fanfic sort of. Um if you're a fan of Bruno Schultz or if you're a fan of um, incredible epileptic fits described in prose or long lists um, of, uh, you know, items. That's a great book. I mean, that book was just on the strand. There's a huge pile of them, like maybe 20 years ago and I picked it up and knew nothing about it. And um, I read it maybe four times. I, I was in a car from New York to Iowa and I read it to the passenger or I was a passenger, I didn't, I wasn't driving reading. I was the passenger and I read it out loud to the driver. Um, so um, you know, it's probably time for me to read it again. Um, "A Balcony in the Forest by Julian Grock. Um, someone else, one of your earlier guests mentioned it at one point as well. Um, that Julian Grock is like this master of the expectation of like anticipatory anxiety. This is a World War II novel um, set in the forest. I don't remember too much except there's like thunder in the distance. There's like this sprightly manic pixie young woman running through it. But the prose is just like, like salt, like James Salter, but kind of like psychedelic, but not mm-hmm. in a way that's trippy. Just like, you know, the, the evidence of everything. It's probably one of the best written books that have instant translation, I think by Denver Lee. Um It's one of the, the, uh Definitely a book I should read again. I've read pretty much all of Julian Gross I could find it in English, except for *Reading and Writing*. And *The Closing Shore* was pretty good. Yeah, the other ones are maybe like a little bit like Poe or something. But *The Balcony in the Forest* is the one um, I'd recommend to everybody. Um, and then *A Musical Offering* by Luis Sagasti, and that's published by Charco Press. And Fionn Petch is the um, translator. I read that with, like, you know expectations at all and read an e-book first and just um completely it's very like associative and it it combines like you know we'll be talking about the who or the Beatles, and then we are talking about bach and then we are talking about something completely different like um an organ there's some like organ out in the movement. it's been a little bit of a time since i read it but um i then read it again i got it in in paperback and then read it in print like immediately i hadn't really done that with a book in a long time like read it back to back um and i probably read it back to back in like four days and that's why i remember really no the amount de- of the details other than being incredibly well written and then fireflies as well by Sagasta, same translator it's fantastic i then bought one of his books in spanish that was about led zeppelin thinking i was going to translate it but maybe the translator is incredible You know, because or maybe this book, the Zeppelin book, wasn't written at the same level. (laughs) I could see in Spanish, like I, it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same. So I did not wind up translating this book about Zeppelin. Also, his insights into Led Zeppelin, I didn't feel like I often agree with him. But whatever, we're not really going to talk about Led Zeppelin at this point into the podcast. There's a book called Atomic Aztec by Seshu Foster. It's published by Grove Press. That was the Believer Book of the Year in like two thousand five. I didn't read it until uh, maybe 2008 or nine. And Stacy um, Foster, I think is one of the, like his name is right there in his name, Foster. Like he's he is a little bit like Dave Foster Wallace. So if you're a fan of Dave Foster Wallace, I would look for CeCe Foster's, uh, his two novels, Atomic Aztec, which is like a Philip K. Dick book involving Aztecs who are fighting Nazis. So, if you're a fan of Philip K. Dick, Dick or um, Ishmael Reed, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, like, in this crazy, like, pinned language, like, audacious, bodacious, energetic prose, just, like, and it has, like, some references to um, to Berlin Alexanderplatz, like, uh, Slaughterhouses, that I then read in Berlin Alexanderplatz, and I was like, oh, this is where he got all the Slaughterhouse stuff. I realize. And similarly, like like in Berlin uh, Berlin Plus, the dialogue runs in. It's not like separated. Some speaking, there's no like hard returns. So it's a little bit difficult. Everything's kind of jammed in in the dialogue. But um, um, yeah, that's something that I don't see talked about that much, even though it had won the Believer Book Award in 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, Amazon's, the intimate profile of uh, the first NHL you know hockey player that's not the title the title of amazon i'm looking at the title it's a amazon's an intimate memoir by the first woman to play in the national hockey league by cleo birdwell um that's a book that doesn't get all that much attention but i think it's really pivotal in the uh, development of the author who are at the same time as writing the names and before that wrote like players and um and ultimately, like, in the first paragraph of White Noise, it says something about, the end of the first paragraph, it says, like, Mystic Mints and the Dum Dum Pops. And the names is kind of like the Mystic Mints, and Amazons by Cleo Birdwell, which is DeLillo under pseudonym, is uh is the Dum Dum Pops. But it's the best way. Like, I always felt, you, DeLillo writes on a typewriter, like, that's kind of well-known. Every sentence seems like it's placed there and sculpted out. But Amazon feels like he wrote it by hand. And it feels looser and more flowing. And it's hugely hilarious. And some of the best character descriptions. If you're a fan of uh, brief interviews with hideous men, you'll see the precedent. It's just a number of character descriptions and dialogues, sort of with these men who the, um, the woman that the narrator has contact with. And just some of the funniest things. And just, it's, you know, it's not available. It's like, I got my copy for like 45 bucks on Amazon somewhere. And, um, I think I was very lucky to find it. But if you can find Amazon, so maybe one day it'll be under the name. Hopefully will clean it, you know, but, um, but that's definitely like a desert. That book is a desert island unto
0: itself. I've never heard of it. I didn't even know he wrote under another name. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, no. And I guess his publisher killed it and, um, yeah, I, I was, I, you know, in part, like you come with incredibly low expectations, right, and then so they're wildly exceeded. You know, I mean, that's part of the thing with me. I really went into being like, this is gonna be a waste of forty five dollars. I, mm-hmm. I, tweeted that or something. And somebody was like, it's worth ninety. <laughs> I mm-hmm. mean, which made me think that that uh, I wasn't like it. But in this also it's like, you know, the names. I feel like, I read all of Sorola's novels again, more or less all of them, again um, during the pandemic, and. Um, I thought the names was one of the, the, but she wrote roughly at the same time he must have. I thought it was one of the the, um, the least well-written of them all, you know? Um, whereas Amazon's is, is like w- more loosely written. I kind of felt like he was having like this nervous breakdown or, or not a nervous breakdown, it was like a crisis in the late 70s. Was after Ratner's Star, he'd written the mm. masterpiece, what he considered a masterpiece, what I would consider a masterpiece of maximalist fiction. And he'd already written a masterpiece with the end and then, and it's like, what's he going to do? You know, he's like trying out new things. And then he, he kind of blends Amazon and the names, the Mystic mystic, and Mystic Mints and the Dumbo Dumb Pops into White Noise, where he has the humor, but he has the headiness and the, you know, the, the emphasis on death. Um, and then let's see, um, Time for Everything, like, not started, the second book, um, which, Takes just a little bit like Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel, and retells it and complexifies that story, you know, or takes the story of the flood and he complexifies that story. Um, And the story of the flood, particularly, goes on. And it's like, it's very insightful to what he does, which is that he, like, he has long stretches, right, in of people just doing things, you know, in biblical era Norway doing just little things about the house, sort of about the hut. it's kind of like the growth of the soil. And then the waters start to rise. And you realize that like, as the flood, the biblical flood comes on, you realize that all of these little things that they were doing, all the little movements around the home, all those are endangered. And all these people are about to die. And all those little things take on more importance. And that's something that he pretty much always does is that he lays out the stretch. You're like, why am I reading this? What's going on? What's the point of all this? And then he hits, you know, he drops some major element that kind of sends a shockwave back through the text. Like in my struggle book one, he's they're going around looking for alcohol um, for a New Year's Eve party, and then the second part is all about how his dad has just died of alcoholism, you know, that kind of thing. Or the whole my struggle thing, he has drops an enormous boulder of the four hundred page Hitler essay. At the end, and sends a shockwave kind of through the the whole text. Um, but I just thought the time for everything was tremendously great. Uh, loved it, and then it also crosses over. If you if you've read my struggle book too, you'll you'll recognize that there's there similar scenes, and you see that there's some fiction where he's you know some of his fiction is um, like the auto fiction. He's not wearing much of a mask at all. He's talking about his wife in a car while she's pregnant driving around the bumpy road and then in time for everything they're in a, in a um they're on a car no in, in my struggle they're in a boat and she's pregnant and there's choppy water and then in the time for everything they're on like a carriage and the woman is pregnant and it's, it's, it's the same thing you see the things that he used for fiction that that was in his life so it's great to read the two of those together if you can and then right after i read a time for everything I read Joseph and His Brothers by Thomas Mann. This would be my last my last book. Um, and Joseph and His Brothers by Thomas Mann, translated by Johnny Woods, um, 1,492 thin modern library pages with like the snazzy. Um, written on it, $40, totally worth it. Uh, essentially four books in one written during, written by a German, like one of the greatest 20th century German writers written mainly in the United States and California just giving the the you know writing one of the early writing about one of the early um Jewish story you know writing the story of Joseph and his brothers taking a little bit of text and exploding it out um and just raising his his middle finger to his homeland in the greatest way but it's just I I don't I don't think like Joseph and his brothers particularly in all the Thomas Mann books, Translated by Johnny Woods, are particularly Boodin books. Um, I I just, I don't know. I think that's like the the pinnacle for me in a lot of ways. But Joseph, um, and his brothers is, I can think the only other book that's at that level for me is War and Peace. Um, and if no one, no one ever really. It's like very rarely talked about. Um. The language, the humor, the insight into everything, the character description, the dialogue, you know, at every level. Um, I couldn't recommend it more. Um, and, yeah, you know, I think it should have a reputation of the Magic Mountain. Like, people think Thomas Mann, they think the Magic Mountain, but I think Gudenbrooks and Justin's brothers which should be, have a higher reputation than Magic Mountain, which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with it or anything, but, I think Joseph and his brother and Gutenberg's particularly are just different level. And I think one the prime was it the Prime minister, the former prime minister, is he the one who mentioned Joseph and his brother?
0: So um, I think he it was Bob Carr, the former premier of New South Wales, yeah
1: okay. yeah, so I, I mean, it was mentioned on the podcast, but it was mm. and I think he was read I think he read the h. Low Porter, the older translations which were. Written with like a biblical cadence, that's mm. apparently not actually in the prose. Um, and apparently that's much harder to read and not not so great. And also wasn't really in the original. Mm. Where Johnny Woods is he also Johnny Woods is also the um translator for uh, Patrick Suskin, who wrote like perfume. Yeah. Um, and those are all wonderfully translated, wonderful books too. Um, but I'd say that is those are my that's my archipelago. Um some of those were published by Archipelago.
0: Well, what a great archipelago archipelago, hard to say. Yeah, what a great archipelago. Um My little
1: yes. Aleutian Islands.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Well, um, I get the feeling you've read almost everything. You've just had such a comprehensive list of of books there. It's amazing.
1: I wanted to write down every book that I had read. These are all the books I've read. There's nothing else. Yeah. I've, <laughs> no. I've actually I've I mean, I tracked everything on Goodreads. Though, so. Yeah. There are a few other books you know, that I didn't mention. Um, the Road. I read The Road by
0: Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I should let you go. Congratulations on Chaotic Good. It's a fantastic read and it is such a great follow-up to Neutral Evil. Um, both them together are just like amazing. I love them. So congratulations on those. Before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can find you online, where we can grab your books, and where we can get onto your Goodreads good page?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Let's see the the last one, the Goodreads you, you probably search for like Joseph and his brothers on Goodreads and then you'd find me. I have like a little walking reading um icon from my picture, just as we I'm not on there as a author, I'm on there as a, just a reader. Um and then um the books can be found probably only on the internet, either through Cyomeniscus or dot uh, com or through um, my site which is litfunforever.com which stands for literary fundamentalism forever which is the belief in you know that literature um, I don't know what it necessarily means I think maybe earlier in the day I could have said what it means but you know the, the idea that uh, literature kind of respects the complexity of everything of reality compared to um, like blue state, red state like binary oppositions that are mm. reductions and all that. And, uh, and that's kind of the idea that literary fundamentalism forever is like a, is like um you know people say like fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists or long fundamentalists say God is great and um and literary fundamentals will say great is good. You know, like what, what you do on this podcast, the did it on both say people are looking for the what's great. You know, and and that's not, sorry, not good, but that is God in a way. Like there's a, a spiritual aspect to that, to searching for things that are great. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So, um, and that is available on com. And then, yeah, I'm on the, whatever, Twitter and those things. I don't know how you'd find me. You know, type in the client. Not worth it. It's just self-promotional, you know, crap. Um, Instagram, there's some photos of my kid. It's like u.clin e. underscore photo trees. I used to have more interesting Instagram because I was in Philadelphia and there's like shit on the streets so that could take photos of. Right? And here it's just like, let's take a picture of this flower really close up. Ooh, that's beautiful. You know, <laughs> mushrooms.
0: A <laughs> couple of de- decapitated chickens.
1: Yeah, no, I didn't. I took. A, we had a dead hawk. I took a photo of that, put that one up. Yeah. We had this owl that was like staring right on a branch, right, for four days in a row right off of our porch so i had some photos of that that was pretty cool that's that's my instagram now is ion nature cool. yeah. so that's pretty much it
0: very nice well thank you so much for joining me it's been a pleasure chatting and thanks for sticking around
1: yeah thank you so much for uh doing this podcast and i've, I've said before like i'm a completest btz completist i'll probably never listen to this podcast because for obvious reasons you know like hearing your own voice or whatever but so I won't, i'll listen to everyone except for one <laughs> but thanks so much for doing it
0: thanks once again to lee klein check out the show notes for all the details you can find us on twitter and instagram at beyond zero pod and you can email us at beyond the zero pod at t-mail.com. don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for beyond the zero help us keep the lights on We'll be back with the next episode next week.